15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the podcast known as Space Nuts, uh, Salted and Assorted. And uh, my name's Andrew Dunkley. Always good to have your company. And joining me as always is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Uh, hi, Andrew. May contain, may contain traces of Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson, as it <laughs> says on the label. That's right. It does too. Um, and so many people are allergic to us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm. Now, t- today we're going to talk about a um, uh, an announcement made by the Australian Space Agency. Yes, there is one. And uh, the, um, the Hubble Space Telescope has uh, found a mystery object in our solar system. I bet it's a rock. I don't know. I have no idea, but I bet it's a rock. <laughs> and uh, space kittens. I don't know what's going on with that. Uh, we're in all sorts of weird places today. And we got an interesting question, which we'll answer at the end as well from Dave at um, Shawnee, I think that's in Kansas, but he's done the US abbreviation and sometimes I find them confusing. Um, but anyway. Actually, um, I'll stop you there, Andrew, because the question's from Daryl. Oh, well, who's Dave? <laughs> and I, think, I think you're looking at the wrong question. Of course I am. <laughs> but we might get to that later. That's yeah. all right. All right. Okay. Bear with us, everybody. We, we really do know what we're doing. Yep, we don't. We do, apparently. Anyway, let's start off with this big announcement, Fred, from the Australian Space Agency, what of which I didn't know existed. Well, actually, it, um, it doesn't yet. Um, <laughs> ah, so you, there you go. You are, look, you're well within your rights not to know it exists because uh, all we've had is an announcement that there is going to be one. But that oh. is an enormous step, Andrew. So what happened was um, on the 25th of September, at the 68th International Astro- Astronautical Congress, which is a huge conference, 5,000 delegates or something, uh, going on in Adelaide. Um, at that meeting, the Australian government, and it's actually Simon Birmingham who made the announcement, announced that they will um, I- initiate steps to create an Australian space agency. You might remember, because I think we spoke about this before, that there is a review going on as to whether we need a space agency. Mm. That kicked off uh, in the middle of July. Uh, but I think the review has had such overwhelming support so far that they've kind of preempted the, the, the outcome of the review and have gone ahead to make this announcement at the Astronautical Congress. Um, so that's great news. It means there will be an overarching body for uh, Australian space activities, which are worth something like $4 billion a year at the moment. Uh, it will no doubt increase because that's one of the mandates of the space agency. I think the only remaining question, Andrew, and it's probably one that you and I really need to sort out for them, is what this space agency is going to be called. Because the Australian space agency, ASA, doesn't really <laughs> just doesn't you know doesn't cut the mustard uh, how a, about how about australian space systems uh, well that's even worse <laughs> <laughs> i do have a suggestion we could we could call it the national australian space agency i don't think anybody's used that before so that would be nasa that kind of rolls off the yeah, tongue that's a pretty good one i like that i i think that could work well, i reckon that your, that's a winner uh, I think it's a winner too. Mm. So uh, look, we—I've seen some um, suggestions for the name of this space agency that we simply could not uh, talk about today. Um, but um, uh, people have been very inventive. But I'm sure there will be a name for it, which will be 
uh, worthwhile and uh, you know I mean you could put in a bid for DASA which will be the double Australian Space Agency that would be good wouldn't uh, it? Yeah, put yeah. On that. yeah. We might we might get some suggestions on our Facebook page if people want to come up with a name for the Australian Space Agency. That could be fun, <laughs> and we'll we'll review those down the track. And for uh, our American listeners who just heard someone cackling in the background, that wasn't a person. That was a bird called a kookaburra. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and that, they tend to laugh. It's, there's all these wives' tales. They, they tend to laugh when it's going to rain. They tend to laugh when I'm about to hit a golf ball. Things like that. They're pretty. Their timing is always immaculate. Uh, as indeed it was now, because they really enjoyed the suggestions for the space agency. They did, they did. Now, um, uh, we'll watch that one with interest, but uh, let's talk about Hubble on a more serious note, uh, finding this mystery object in our solar system, and I reckon it's a rock. Well, you might be right or you might be wrong. Um, <laughs> well, I can, I can be both. <laughs> we don't know. Um, what, what they found, you, you, you're right, it's... Um, it's in the asteroid belt. So <clears throat> this is the place where we, we know there are millions of asteroids. It's that region between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter um, where the kind of debris of the solar system has collected. It's one of two places where it's collected in big time, and the other one is way out beyond the, ne uh, the orbit of Neptune. Uh, so we've got this object, which has been observed by the Hubble, and uh, it has two features that make it uh, unusual, possibly even unique. Uh, first of all, it is what's called a binary asteroid. Uh, so um, uh, it's thought to be an asteroid. In fact, it's classified as an asteroid. It's got the marvelous name of 288P, uh, which, you know, you would know immediately tells you that that's an asteroid. Absolutely, yep. Got it. No. Uh, 288P is, is made of two objects which are in orbit around one another. So anything, uh, any circumstance in which we get two things orbiting each other, uh, it's called a binary. And, for example, we get binary stars. We uh, have um, a binary dwarf planet out there in the depths of the solar system. That's Pluto and its big moon, Charon, because they orbit each other rather than Charon orbiting, orbiting uh, Pluto. Mm. But this uh, 288P is a binary asteroid. It's two halves which are in orbit around one another. But the thing that makes it possibly unique is that the two uh, objects are showing characteristics of a comet oh. and what happens with comets is that they are made unlike asteroids which are rocky or stony comets are made largely of ice and when the sun's radiation uh, hits their surface that ice actually it doesn't evaporate it, it goes through a process we call sublimation it sublimes which means goes straight from a solid to a vapor and it's that vapor that um, we see uh, illuminated by sunlight, it causes it to glow. And so this uh, pair of so-called asteroids have the what, what's called the coma, the, the sort of region of, of glowing around the asteroid, and a tail as well, driven off by the radiation of the sun in the opposite direction to the sun, which is exactly what happens with a comet. So this thing is part comet, part asteroid, and so part... So it's, it's, it's a cometoid... It could be a cometoid. Yeah, that's a great name. Yeah. Um, I think you should write in and, and suggest, suggest that. that. Cometoid 288P. That's got yeah. a ring to it. 
yes, we're doing well with names today. I think we're I think we're doing really well. It's it's a team from. <laughs> I'll just move on. A team from from uh, Germany, uh, from uh, one of the Max Planck Institutes in Germany, uh, who have made this discovery. And I think because it is so unusual that the the two halves of the binary are very widely separated. They're almost equal in size. They have um, what we call a high eccentricity. So they're not orbiting one another in circles. They're, they're going in very elliptical orbits, elongated orbits. So it is very, very odd. It is. Um, and a, apparently the research team have, have, have realized or they believe that this has been a binary system. In other words, two objects together for only about 5,000 years. That suggests that these things came together um, you know, or maybe something broke up due to fast rotation or two separate things came together. Uh, it seems unusual that that would have happened to have two comet-like objects coming together by accident. Mm. So maybe a breakup scenario is the one to go for. So they'll obviously study this more closely to see if they can define it because if it's something they've never seen before, then obviously it warrants further investigation. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure um, there will be a lot of research done on this. Uh, you know, the, when you find unusual objects like this, particularly in the solar system, uh, which is our, our cosmic doorstep, yes, um, people get very excited, yeah. which is why I'm excited, Andrew. Yeah, well, you know, it's your job. Um, no, it's uh, it's fascinating. So we'll we'll probably hear more about this uh, down the track. Uh, do we know where it's headed? Where's it, is it going to the sun? It's, it's, it is just in orbit. It, it does have a, an elongated orbit. So, um, but but mostly within that region between Mars and Jupiter. So it's not going to, you know, like comets, which are in very elongated orbits, it's not going to get near the sun and start brightening up. It will pretty well stay in the neck of the woods where it already is. Right. Okay. Well, we'll watch with interest. And you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space nuts. Okay, Fred, let's lift the lid on these cosmic kittens. Now, it does sound a bit ridiculous, and it probably is. I mean, it's astronomy after all. Um, please explain. Um, well, the, the, the kitten that usually features on this podcast, uh, who's actually... Mandu. Um, a 30, yes, Mandu is a 13-year-old kitten, but he still thinks he's a kitten. Uh, he's not here today, so he won't be contributing to this discussion. Um, but this is a, a piece of work. I mean, it's not really a piece of work. It's just a, um, something that's been happening among the Cassini mission scientists. And, you know, we've spoken endlessly about Cassini. Uh, you know that it's one of my favorite space missions. It no longer exists. It's now part of the planet Saturn. But the research that we saw coming out of Cassini made so many new discoveries. It's hard even to think of making a list. Uh, but you would not have expected that kittens would be among them. Mm. And that is because uh, what we're talking about here is features in the rings of Saturn, which are... Um, actually temporary features, but almost become things uh, like small moons for a short period. Um, so just to set the scene, Andrew, the rings of Saturn, of course, are composed of billions of uh, bits of debris. This is uh, rocks uh, or mostly ice. There, there is a rocky component, but most of it is, is lumps of ice. And these are up to about 10 metres across. Um, they form this swirling 
ring of material around the planet, which we're all familiar with, 275,000 kilometers from one side to the other, but only 100 meters thick. Astonishing stuff. Now, within those rings, there are several of Saturn's moons that move around. One is Daphnis, which I think we've spoken about before. It sits in uh, something called the Keeler Gap near the edge of what's known as the A ring, the, the, the brightest of the rings. Uh, but what also happens, as well as there being sort of solid moons in there, only a few kilometers across, what you get is kind of buildups of ring particles. So um, as the uh, as the this swirl of material uh, proceeds around Saturn, um, the gravitational forces that are at play there, which involves these moons as well as the planet itself, it tends to clump stuff together in little fluffy balls. And I'm sure that is the reason why these things are being called kittens. Okay. Um, it's partly be because of that, but also um, when they were discovered, uh, when they have been discovered, they have tended to collect uh, names uh, which are very definitely uh, feline names like Fluffy and Whiskers <laughs> and Socks and Garfield. And they're unofficial nicknames. For... Oh, hang on, hang on. Garfield's a pretty cool name. I like that too, yeah. I don't think Garfield's a kitten, actually. I think he's a bit more like Mandu. Anyway, they are, uh, they are, these are the, um, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the sort of pet names that uh, mission scientists have for these objects. And, but the way that they've been detected is actually quite interesting because these clumps of material are so small and indistinct that you can't really see them directly. And what you have to do is look for stellar occultations. Wow. And you and, I, you and I have spoken about this before. A stellar occultation is when something passes in front of a star, and so it is occulted or hidden. Mm -hmm. That's what the word means. So the star is hidden by something. It happens with the moon. The moon is um, perhaps the most common occulting body in the solar system from our perspective because it's so big. But it happens too with um, other planets and with asteroids and now with these kittens that uh, Cassini has observed by looking at the brightness of more distant stars, um, and the one that um, has featured a lot is Regulus, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo the Lion. Um, and that, uh, that star has been, its light has been dimmed, and it has been interpreted as being due to these small clumps of ring debris, the kittens. Uh, and so they're being studied, and it tells us a little bit more about the way gravity interacts with the particles in Saturn's rings. Um, there is um, there is a, a, a graph that it's fairly easy to find on the web that um, highlights this whole thing because it shows the the way the light of uh, of uh, Regulus has been obscured by one of these kittens. And there is a little arrow pointing towards the peak in the graph with a picture of a pussycat yeah. right beside it. <laughs> You'll find that on space.com, I think. <laughs> yeah, somebody's got a sense of humor out there. Yeah, that's unusual for people like you. Um, <laughs> but there's also a great animation of um, the occultation that you explained of, yes, of right. the object passing um, you know, uh, in front of a, a star. So that's how the observations are made. 
Um, yes, they're very interesting, these, these kittens. I, I did read um, a science fiction novel by Kim Stanley Robinson. The title escapes my brain at the moment. But um, humans had sort of occupied the entire solar system in this, this particular book. And, and they used to, uh, and they talked about collisions of things like this, like kittens, in the rings of Saturn. And people used to surf the bow waves of these collisions. There you go. Mm, yeah. Just for fun. That's right. Yeah. So that's um, because that's we look at them nice. as fairly stationary, stable environments, but I imagine they're not. No, they're quite dynamic. That's right. Um, the effect of particularly these little moons that are embedded in them, it's quite dramatic. The effect on the rings, yeah. they, they have waves in them and all kinds of things, which is why um, the idea of surfing the waves is a nice one. Yeah, well, maybe maybe someone will do that one day. But uh, yeah, if you'd like to look at the explanation. <laughs> Is that Mandu on top of Saturn on the space.com website? <laughs> well, it's about the right size for Mandu. <laughs> oh, Fred. Yeah, you're feeding him too much, Fred. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, uh, you're listening to... There's nothing more to say about that. You're listening to Space Nuts uh, with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. Okay, we checked all four systems, and team with a go. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we are going to answer another uh, audience question. We, we love to do this because it saves us research. But then again, sometimes it means we have to do research. Well, not me. I mean, I'm too lazy, but Fred will do it. Uh, but uh, this one comes from Daryl Harper, who is from nowhere, apparently, because he hasn't told us where he's from, and it's probably a fake name. No, uh, Daryl asks, uh, is it possible that with uh, what we know about the meteorite that wiped out the dinosaurs, um, could it have been a massive comet which may have also deposited uh, on Earth the water that we now have here at some time or at the same time? Does that make sense? It's a, yeah, it absolutely makes sense. It's a great question as well. But I think all the research points uh, in the other direction that this was not uh, an object that brought water to, uh, to the Earth. Um, and the reason for that is that the... Of course, the, the crater, the, the Chicxulub crater, which is where this asteroid landed 66 million years ago in, in the Gulf of Mexico, that's now been well studied by, you might remember, there was a, a drilling ship that was there for quite a long time that's last right. year mm. by, the, by the name of Myrtle, which I thought was quite <laughs> a nice name as well. Um, and that had drilled down into the into the shocked rock uh, at the base of the crater. And I think, so I think all the evidence is that this was a pretty solid asteroid. It was 15 kilometers or so across uh, and basically a, what, what we would call a stony asteroid. It could, which it could is, have been a cometoid, Daryl. Just, uh, just saying. <laughs> Ignore him, Daryl. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. No, I don't. Uh, I'll admit it. <laughs> it's, um, it it's, but it is an interesting question about... Um, the water on Earth coming from comets. And this was certainly the prevailing view uh, of, of planetary science until really quite recently. But there is an issue with that. And it's that all the comets we've looked at have a different isotope of hydrogen in their water from what we find commonly in the oceans of Earth. And that suggests that maybe it wasn't the comets. It's not a, it's not, um, a universal uh, phenomenon because some uh, there are a few comets that may well have the same isotope so it's a mixed picture at the moment but um from my reading uh i think the cu the current view is actually <coughs> that the water on earth came not via comets 
but via something that you might wonder how it differs from a comet, and this is an icy asteroid. Uh, so icy asteroids are still principally rock, but actually have a fairly high water content. And th th perhaps the best example of that is the biggest asteroid in the solar system. It's big enough to be spherical, so it's con considered to be a dwarf planet. That is Ceres. Mm -hmm. uh, Ceres is a rocky object, but it has a very high water content. There's a lot of ice there, uh, as, as uh, investigated by NASA's Dawn um, spacecraft, which is currently in, in orbit around Ceres. So uh, uh, apparently the isotopes match up when you look at the icy asteroids, whereas they don't when you look at the comets. Uh -huh. So that is what is now thought. Um, so, so you know, Darren, if he was uh, with us now, he'd probably say, well, you know, was was the um, the dinosaur eliminating asteroid an icy one? Yes. And I don't think, I, I, I certainly don't know the answer to that, but I suspect uh, the thinking is that it was probably more rocky than icy. So um, I think the answer is no, but it's a great question. And thank you very much for asking it. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to... Um to, to learn that there are different kinds of water being carried around in space um, with, with those varying isotopes. So um, you can now identify likely candidates for depositing water on Earth or not, um, which uh, you know, takes you just one step closer to figuring the whole thing out. Yes, that's right. Which we, is we... what you've been trying to do all your life, Fred, really. <laughs> Trying to work out life, the universe, and everything. Yeah, it's 42, by the way. Everybody <laughs> knows that. Mm. Mm. All right. Uh, and, of course, we do um, encourage you to send your questions uh, to us. You can do that by uh, sending them to our Facebook page or via Twitter. And uh, we, uh, I, think, I think we have a, a Q&A interface where you can actually purposely write a question for us through bytes.com, B-I-T-E-S-Z.com. Um, either way, we love to get your questions. We'll try and answer them. And, and I did mention a question earlier from someone else that wasn't the question that we were going to answer today, but we'll, we'll get to that later when we've done, when Fred's done his research, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Fred, as always. It's been great fun. No problem, Andrew. Good to talk to you again, and we'll speak soon. We will indeed. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And you've been listening to Space Nuts, the podcast, and you can hear it just about anywhere uh, via Apple, uh, Audio Boom, Stitcher. Uh, the list goes on and on and on, and we certainly encourage your feedback. Uh, it doesn't have to be a question. You can just make a comment or an observation or think of a name for the Australian Space Agency. We'd love for you to do that. Um, you know, have a bit of fun with it. And uh, until next time, thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. <laughs>